Uh, but this morning we're, we're starting a new series called The Elephant in the Room. We recognize that with the holiday season coming up, with Thanksgiving, with Christmas, that we're going to be interacting with our families a lot more than we would for the previous, than we did for the previous 10 months. And we recognize that for some of us, or maybe, maybe even a lot of us, that that can be a very stressful or trying time in our lives. And maybe for you, as you watch that video, you recognize that dynamic. The dynamic of a, of a quiet table, where all you hear are forks hitting plates, where all you see are, are rolling eyes, and all you hear besides the forks are the, the sighs and the, kind of the, the looks of disgust that when people are not talking about what everyone's thinking about. Maybe you saw this with your family. Maybe you see this with your friends. Maybe you see this with your coworkers at, at lunch break. Maybe you even see this with the people you go to church with. But we recognize that as we go into this, this, this time of year, November, December, we're talking about Thanksgiving and Christmas, that there are some family dynamics that come up that can be challenging. And so what we're going to do with these next two weeks is we're going to talk about the elephant in the room. And for, for today, for this morning, we're really focusing in on envy. We're really focusing on envy. Uh, Proverbs has something to say about envy. Proverbs chapter 14. It'll be on the screen, but you can also follow along in your Bibles. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30 says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. So envy kind of makes things rotten. Envy kind of, kind of ruins things. And since we're in this elephant in the room, we're going to really kind of get things out there, kind of clear our conscience. I have some things to confess. And, and my connection group will probably be a little alarmed at some of these things, but, but I have some things to confess. If you were to come over to my house, you have refrigerator rights. You can get in the fridge, you can get out anything you want, but you should know something. I am a carton drinker. <laughs> Didn't expect the, 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 the sound of disgust from the back there. But I'm a carton drinker. And I, I am unashamedly a carton drinker. And my philosophy is, is I am just saving us on dishwashing costs by not using a glass. But when I get milk, I drink out of the carton. So if you were to come over, you just need to know that you're welcome to the milk, but I've been drinking from the carton. Now, now with this, I'm taking a bit of a risk, aren't I? There's this, there's this little printed thing on the outside of the milk carton that's a date. And this date drives us. I was, I was last night, I was, I was with apparently the rest of Noblesville spending my Saturday night at Walmart. And we were all crazy for doing that. But there was, it was nuts. It was, I couldn't believe how many people were at Walmart last night. But we were at Walmart and we had to get milk. We're having family over today and so we had to get a fresh gallon of milk. And so, we had to, so go, I go in the back to get the milk because it's all in the back, you know. They want you to see the whole store to get the basic necessities. And I go and I grab some milk and I, I start to walk away. And out of the corner of my eye, I see this glimmer of hope, this thing that we all covet so much when we get a gallon of milk. I saw a date that was later than the date I had in my hand and immediately stopped my tracks, put it back, grabbed the, the, the milk that, was, that didn't expire until December, and kind of walked triumphantly back through the aisles to the front of the store. And it was this moment where, uh, where it was kind of like I felt like I really accomplished something there. You know, we, we searched for the one that, that's the latest uh, date, and we searched for the one that, that can last the longest. Because if you've ever drank sour milk, it's a, it's a mistake that you don't want to make again. And as a carton drinker, I put myself at a little bit more of a risk. I don't pour it out. I probably don't, don't smell it as much. And, and being a carton drinker, there's been some times where I have really, really discovered how bad rotten milk tastes. 
I, I think about how, how when things rot, they really change. Uh, we, were, we left, Heidi and I left for a youth trip several years ago. It was in the summer. And so you kind of leave the house and you kind of, you kind of do things at the house to kind of make sure things are all set, you know, make sure things will be fine when you get back. You even, you even clean your house so when you come back, you come back to a clean house, things like that. But we had not cleaned the kitchen very well. See, see, before we left, we had enjoyed a watermelon like you do in the summertime. And we had cut half of the watermelon and eaten that other half, and, and we didn't eat the other half. And when we came back home, we were confronted by this odor that was just undescribable because we had left that half of the watermelon sitting on the kitchen counter for a week. So we walk in, and the smell is obvious. And, and for whatever reason, we, we joked about this later, we didn't bring the trash can to it. We, we picked up the watermelon and took it to the trash can. But we, we picked it up. It was on a plate. And it wasn't like it even, there was no more melon. It was just liquid. And it was kind of coming over the sides and it was coming down. It was this, it was this cloudy, milky-looking liquid. And, and the rind, was part of it was turning black. And it was just, it was obvious that this thing was rotten. And had changed drastically. I think we can all have a mental picture, a mental idea of, of that chunky milk, uh, of, that, of that bread that's moldy, uh, of, of whatever it is that's gone bad, and we bite into it or take a drink of it expecting something else. Because when we talk about envy, we talk about how it rots things. And when something is rotten, it changes it completely. It takes something that was good and turns it to something that's bad. Envy screws up a relationship. So if you're taking notes, we're, we're talking about what envy does. The first thing that envy does is that envy is resenting God's goodness in others' lives, in the lives of others. We look at someone else, we see them connecting with God, something positive happening in, in, in their life, and we resent them. We, we can't believe that they're that fortunate. So envy is just kind of that, that resentment towards others. But it's also, and bonus points if you catch the typo in your notes, but it's also ignoring God's goodness in our own lives. It's ignoring what God is doing in our own lives. It's never good enough. We always want more. We always kind of play this game of, of resentment and ignoring what God is doing because envy causes us to look at things a little bit differently. Now, when we're talking about envy, you may have a first thought, man, are we, we're really going to talk about this. This is kind of a, a trivial issue. This is something that seems so kind of surfacey. And this is just Josh up here telling us to have a, have a good Thanksgiving with their family. Well, that's, that's very, very much far from what we're trying to do here. Because I believe, and I think the Scripture supports, that, that envy at the core really damages relationships, not just with ourselves and other people, but with ourselves and God. That this is a serious issue. And I think it's more of an issue in our lives than we recognize. Because if we were to take a poll and we were all to raise our hands... How many of you would, you would would think to yourself that you would be all about having a job that someone else has? You look at someone else, I wish I had their job. Or maybe not their job, but their paycheck. I just wish I had their paycheck. Or you're driving around, and, or maybe you go to those, those horrible things called home shows, and you see a house, and you think, I want that. I, don't, I only have one kitchen, you know? I only have three bathrooms, or whatever it is, and you start comparing on this unrealistic level. How many of you would, would look at somebody on TV or that you know and say, I wish I had their body. I wish I had their build. Uh, maybe, maybe parents, you want to secretly admit this, that I wish my kids acted like those kids. Or, or you, you're a college student, and, and you're one of those college students that's taken, taken like a real major, like 
you're like pre-med or you're, you're, you're taking something serious, nursing or, or something like that with the sciences that really is intense. And you look at somebody like me who's a religion major and you think, what do they do with all that free time? I wish I had their schedule. And so whatever it is, I think it's really easy for us to forget that we have envy in our lives. That there are things that we wish we had. And if we look at scripture, we realize what a big deal envy is. Maybe you're familiar with the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are, are such, a, such a core thing in the Old Testament. When we talk about the, the law, it kind of begins with the, with the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are kind of split up. The first four really focus on a relationship with God. But the last six really give us an idea of what a healthy community of faith looks like. Those last six kind of say, if we, if we do the first four, if we honor God with this, these last six will kind of be the natural outflow of those first four. That we won't have to worry about those last six if we live out the first four. And that last one of the six, the ten of the Ten Commandments, says don't covet. Don't want things that, not, that aren't yours. Don't envy. Don't be jealous. Don't pursue those things that don't belong to you. And so maybe you don't think it's a problem. Maybe you don't think that this really matters. But I believe that it's, it's so crucial. It's so central to all of our kind of sin issue. All of our kind of disconnection and distance from God. A lot of it can come back to envy. And it might help to realize that there's another word for envy. It's consumerism. Consumerism. I, there's this guy named Alan Hirsch. And Alan Hirsch is, is a writer. He's a church leader. He's a guy. He's an Australian. And, uh, and Alan Hirsch spends his whole life kind of examining how, how churches function in the world. He writes a lot about missional movements. And missional movements were a lot of what we talked about with the Go series, about living outwardly with our faith. But Alan Hirsch has observed in Europe and in Australia how the church has just kind of become marginalized and become just kind of an afterthought and a kind of a, an unchristian, kind of post-Christian society. And what he sees is that he sees that happening in America, and he writes a lot, and he writes a lot about consumerism. He says, I have come to believe that the major threat to the viability of our faith is that of consumerism. He goes on to say this, This is our missional context, that outward living, that great commissioning, that go life. I've come to believe that in dealing with consumerism, we're dealing with, a very, with an exceedingly powerful enemy propagated by a very sophisticated media machine. This is our situation. But it's also our own personal condition. And it must be dealt with if we are going to be effective in the 21st century in the West. If you were to take a guess as to how many marketing messages you and I are exposed to on a daily basis, in your mind, what would you think? I guarantee you it's not high enough. One study by Consumer Reports said that on an average day, an average American is exposed to 250 messages of marketing, of advertisers, of some kind of thing like that on a daily basis. There's a, a marketing consulting agency in Atlanta uh, that said, said the number is more like 600. Texas A&M consult, did a study and they came to the number of 850. And there, there's other, other numbers out there that, that I didn't think were quite backed up, but even looking at these that we can kind of confirm this, this kind of a, this, these, these published studies, 250 times a day, we're told to buy something, we're told to do something, we're told to, to live differently, we're told to spend our money, our resources, our time on something that we don't do currently. And if you look at any commercial on TV, on radio, in print, there's kind of a general theme, there's kind of a general pattern that emerges. The first thing is that they're communicating that you need this. The second 
is that without it, you will be incomplete. And the third is that having it will make you complete. You think about any beer commercial, you think about any insurance commercial, any food restaurant commercial, anything like that, you will see this pattern. If you don't go to our restaurant, your family's going to fall apart. But if you come to our restaurant, your family's going to come together and bond and love each other and everyone's going to celebrate. And this just doesn't happen with, with commercials. This happens in politics, doesn't it? When was the last time that you heard a politician from either side of the aisle, from any, any background, say something truly complimentary about an opponent? Truly complimentary. When they do make a compliment, they always qualify it. Well, I agree with my opponent, but I wouldn't have done it that way. Well, he was half right. You know, let's, let's, make, let's make, you, make some people mad here. If you think back to, to Obama when he was campaigning, the one-word campaign was hope, implying that it was hopeless to stay with someone from the other party, that we were living without hope for the previous eight years. You watch any of the thousands of GOP debates that have been on TV lately, and you'll see how, how, people are, how those candidates never, ever say anything positive about the other side and give us this picture that if we were not to vote for them, world, the world that, as we know it would cease to exist. When we can look back on history and see, see people from all kinds of political persuasions, all kinds of political parties have come in and gone out and come in and gone out and things are still going along relatively fine. Sure, we have, we have opinions on that, but what they're saying is that I'm not the, they're not saying I'm the better alternative. What they're saying is, is I'm the only alternative. And over 250 times a day, you're being told over and over again that your life is incomplete that your life is not, not, uh, not the way it should be, whether, it's a, whether they're selling beer or insurance, they're telling you that you're missing out on something. And we're about to be confronted by some very intense commercialism. It's already started. November 1st, I'm walking through a store and there's Christmas music playing. And the aisles are all set up and the deals are, and the flyers are already out. But if you're like my family, what's going to happen on Thursday afternoon is that you're going to get around... The TV is going to be on football. Everyone's going to be tired and, and stuffed. And all of a sudden, grandma or grandpa or mom or dad are going to start passing out the newspaper ads. And they're going to ask you for a Christmas list. And they're going to ask you for a list of things you want. Now, this is well-intentioned. This is very good, but we easily pervert it. We easily shift it around to becoming about what we get. And maybe for your family, that's when you do the, the gift exchange drawing that you thought was a great idea to kind of limit what we spend, to kind of help us kind of get a handle on this, to kind of keep, keep things in, in control, keep, keep things within reason. But all of a sudden it becomes very complicated and all of a sudden people's feelings are getting hurt and uh, all of a sudden it's because they're not getting what they thought they were going to get. And for parents, I, I don't really know how you guys do it. Because so often your kids will come home and say, well, so-and-so has this, well, so-and-so has that. And there's this pressure, and all of a sudden, what you get them for Christmas or their birthday is equal to how much you love them. And so as we go into the season of, of intense commercialism, I think it's very important that we stop and maybe just ask ourselves, how does envy play into this? What do we really need? What do we not really need? And how do we change our heart about this? I think there will be a lot of conversations, or at least there usually are about this time, about the war on Christmas about people wishing you happy holidays and saying Merry Christmas and all that, all that uh, junk. I don't really care about that. I don't really care what people say to me at Christmas time. I care much more about whether or not we're going to go into debt. 
I care, I care whether or not we're going to really miss another opportunity to love our family, to reach out and tell them about Jesus. I care about whether or not we're going to be living differently because when Jesus was born into this world, things changed. And, and if we're going to be some, somebody that's, that's different, that's a light to the world, somebody that, that changes things, I don't think that we change things by, by being concerned what the cash register person said to us. I think we change things by living differently. And maybe the first thing that we need to do is realize that when we're talking about envy, we're talking about consumerism, that's causing us to ignore God in our lives, to ignore what God's doing and resent what God's doing in the lives of others. What we're saying when we become envious, when we get kind of wrapped up into this, is that, God, you're not enough, that we're not satisfied. In the book of Esther in the Old Testament, there's this incredible story. And in this book, in this book we have this, this character named Haman. And Haman's kind of the bad guy. Haman is the, is the guy who, who is out to get, get the Jewish people. And Esther and Mordecai find themselves in a position of, of influence and find themselves in a position to change things. But Esther really, or, or Haman really is driven by this. And let me read from chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 11 of Esther. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. So we have this story of Haman, this guy who had been promoted as high as he could possibly be promoted. He had everything he could possibly need. But he was driven crazy by the fact that Mordecai, a Jew, was in a position of power that had, had some respect in his life. And if you know the rest of the story, Haman is in the midst, right there in chapter 5, of, of, of kind of hatching this big conspiracy to, to carry out a genocide against the Jews. It's so much to the point where he's actually built gallows to start this genocide. But at the banquet he references there in chapter 5, Esther kind of speaks out and tells the king what's really going on, and Haman actually is executed on the gallows he had built for others. Haman was driven, was consumed, was overwhelmed by this need to have more. So what does envy do? What is the result? Uh, For Haman, it resulted in his demise, and I think that's an important thing to realize, that it doesn't just stay with us. It infects those around us. It rots relationships. If you're taking notes, it rots relationships. You think about all those relationships in your life that have broken down, that have become strained because there was a disagreement, because there was some sort of envy underneath it, some sort of jealousy, some sort of, 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 uh, of discontentment. And when you talk about that other person that you're maybe envious of or jealous of, you always talk to them in the negative. You never speak about them in the positive. You never extend grace. And you always, kind of, you're not always, you begin to start to dehumanize them. You don't refer to them by name, you use pronouns. You talk about them or they. If you know the story of Cain and Abel, early in Genesis, one of the first, one of those early families, Cain and Abel, these two brothers, jealousy becomes such an issue that Cain murders Abel. And God comes down and says, and says well, what's going on, Cain? Where's your brother? And he responds by saying, am I my brother's keeper? He, he dehumanizes him. He doesn't use his name. And he distances himself from the responsibility of the act. 
When we are dealing with envy, it begins to rot relationships. In James chapter 3, this really short book in the back of the New Testament that is packed full of, of wisdom, starting in verse 16, he says this, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. If you look at 16 and 17, you see just how, how different these two ways of life are and how, the, how, how, just, how completely opposite they are. How in 16, when we talk about envy, there's just no humility at all. There's never any sense of worrying about others. But in 17, all this kind of fruit of the Spirit stuff, all this stuff that kind of is an outpouring of God changing us in our lives that is good. Not only does envy kind of rot relationships, I think it spoils life. Kind of staying with that, that, that theme of, of things that are rotten. It spoils life. We don't appreciate what we have. We never have enough. It's never good enough. In Genesis chapter 30, we see the story of, of Rachel and Jacob. And Rachel and Jacob were a husband and wife, and, and, and Rachel hasn't been able to have a child yet. And she says in, in verse 1 of chapter 30, When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said, she, so she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Now let's, let's put aside the issues that, that, that Rachel and Leah were, were like sister wives, and Jacob had multiple wives, and the complications of that. But let's focus in on this, this kind of this statement, this absolute kind of overwhelming statement, if I don't have kids, I'm going to die. Her life was, was, was ruined. She wasn't able to see what she was being blessed with beyond that. She was so jealous that she couldn't see past it. Because that's what envy does. It causes us to see things as more intense or more dire than they really are. They kind of skew our lives just a little bit to make us miserable. They kind of change our perspective so that we're never grateful and never accepting. And really, maybe, there's, maybe it's helpful to realize that there's some other words for envy, maybe some best friends of envy. The first one is, is that we compare, that we, we're always comparing ourselves to others. And we all know how, how useless this is, how, how pointless, what a waste of time it is, but we still do it. We realize that, that we shouldn't be doing it, but we kind of allow envy in by comparing ourselves to others. And it's so easy today to find people who are more accomplished. With social media and just kind of that whole culture where, where you're almost kind of ingrained for self-promotion, it's so easy to realize that you're kind of behind the curve, or at least think you're behind the curve. There's this thing on Twitter, this kind of this practice that, that I've done, I'm kind of ashamed to say I've done, but, but others have done as well, where someone will tweet, will put something out there that links to something you've done, maybe a blog post or something you, you said or something you tweeted. And so they'll put that out there and they'll tag you. And so you'll see that that's out there. But then the, the practice where it kind of gets a little weird is that I will then take that and retweet it to my followers. So I'll take that and kind of broadcast it to, to the people who are following me. And the best, best kind of analogy I can think of would be this, is that you get an encouraging card in the mail. You get a card in the mail that tells you how awesome you are, how appreciative th- that person is of you. And you decide that you want to let other people know this. So you go, you make a copy of this, and then you mail that letter to all the people that you know. And you kind of put that out there. And at the core of this, is it's all self-promotion. It's all kind of, look how good I am. Look how, how accomplished I am. And when we compare ourselves, we feel like we always need to catch up, that we're never good enough, that we're never quite there. When I think about jealous relationships and relationships that are kind of ruined by jealousy, I, I, I quickly think about Saul and David. 
Saul was the king. David was the guy who was becoming king. He was kind of the, the one that was obviously rising to power. And so there's this gray period where Saul and David kind of coexisted, but there was a rivalry brewing. And there were songs that were being sung about Saul and David's greatness. And the, the chorus kind of went that, that Saul had killed thousands, but David had killed tens of thousands. And Saul was driven crazy by this. And in 1 Samuel chapter 18, starting in verse 8, it says this, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Often after we are done comparing, we're done comparing ourselves to others, we start really talking bad about others. And we start really, really kind of announcing how, how hard our life is. And so I think it's really easy to make that jump to say that we talk about comparing with envy, but we also talk about complaining. We also talk about the fact that we complain a lot. Now, as a youth pastor, as somebody who deals with students, I, I kind of have four rules whenever we go on a youth trip. And these four rules are very simple, and, and some of the students could probably recite them to you. But these four rules, anytime we go anywhere, are really simple. The first one is, is don't be a jerk. Pretty self-explanatory. second one is don't be an idiot. The third one is no PDA, no public displays of affection. I always tell kids, you might meet your future spouse on this trip, but I don't really care. And so, you know, if you're holding hands, like back rubs, cuddling, like, I'm going to embarrass you. And so just, just know that up front. But the fourth is, is really, really important and kind of pertinent to this, is that no whining. And I elaborate on that. I say, if you're whining to me, I'm going to walk away from you. Now, we could be talking and you're whining. I'm just going to move on to something else. And I've done that a couple of times with students. And it's really funny because they don't realize what I'm doing. And they, so they just kind of follow me and keep, keep, keep the conversation going or at least attempt to. But, but it's, so, it's so true how, how whining and complaining just kind of skews our whole perception of things. That we can, can't even see past what's going on around us. And, and I guess when, uh, I guess it's, it's kind of hard to see that. It's kind of hard to, hard to realize that. And we do, a, we do a real good job of noticing when other people whine, but we don't do a, an excellent job of noticing when we whine, when we complain. So maybe this morning we just need to acknowledge, you know, you've got a job. You may hate it, but you've got a job. You, you may kind of be at, the, at your wit's end with your kids, but they're healthy. You know, you, you, may, you may be driven crazy by your family, but they're still around. You may come to this church and you may think the music's too loud. You may think the coffee doesn't taste good, which it really doesn't. You may think the bagels are kind of, kind of, kind of gross. You may, you may not, you may not get, you may not like the preaching or, you know, like when I preach as opposed to Paul, whatever it is. But I think we can look around and see a lot of positive here. I think we can see that the life change is happening here. And so, so we can find faults in anything. We can find negatives. But it's so important to find the positive and focus on that. Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. See, now Paul had plenty of reasons to complain. He had plenty of reasons to, to whine. Paul had been beaten. He'd been arrested. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been, he'd been, uh, been sent to jail for a long period of time where many, many of the letters of the New Testament were written. And eventually, he's going to be beheaded in Rome. He's going to be executed because of his faith. And so it's not that Paul ignores these facts. You know, Paul still asks for help. He still, he still uh, asks the churches for support and kind of acknowledges that there's pain in his life. But he does it without complaining, without grumbling. Because Paul eventually figures out the secret to all this. 
Later in Philippians in chapter 4, starting in verse 12, he says this, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And here's the kicker. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. See, when we entertain envy, when we let jealousy kind of into our lives, what we're saying is that, God, you owe me. You owe me. I deserve better. And really the cure for this is thankfulness. The cure for this is, is acknowledging what we've been given, is finding contentment, realizing that we can do anything through Jesus Christ. So maybe in this cheesy idea of, of talking about what we're thankful for as Thanksgiving approaches, maybe the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that we need to be thankful for what Jesus did. That, that our lives are not pointless, that they have value, that they mean something because Jesus died for us. That Jesus lowered himself to this place, took on a human likeness. God came down to earth as Jesus and allowed himself to suffer and die because of love. And so maybe we need to start with that. Maybe we need to sit with that for a while, that we need to be thankful about this incredible gift because when we start to focus on that, those other things that we focus on, those, those, those envies and the comparing and the complaining and, and worrying about what we have or what they have and what we don't have or whatever it is, when we focus in on the fact that Jesus died for us, when we're truly thankful about that, nothing else really matters. Nothing else really matters. Because envy is telling God that you're not good enough. Envy is telling God he's, he's not providing enough when he's provided everything we could possibly need. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you um, for this, this message. And Lord, it's, it's a, it, is, it is something that we all need to hear. Lord, as we, as we move into this, uh, this joyful season, this time to celebrate with family, this time to, uh, to remember what, what is good in our lives, and Lord, just the time for fun that, 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 that this season brings. God, I just I ask that you would help us stop and be thankful. That you would show us ways that we can appreciate what you've done for us. And Lord, that we can kind of put things in perspective. Realizing that we may be envy, envious, we may have jealousy in our lives. But we need to be thankful. And maybe the first thing we need to be thankful for is you. Lord, we love you. We need you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.